0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 60, The Paradox.
1: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting
0: room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Clodo Ryan, a family practice DPC physician from suburban Chicago. We won't focus much today on DPC, but rather Dr. Ryan's experiences as a primary care doc working into the UK's NHS and Ireland's similar health system. You see, Dr. Ryan is from Ireland and spent years working in their system, our insurance-based system, and now in direct care. She provides unique perspective on how the medical systems differ. I think you'll really enjoy our discussion as much as I did. I have a quick favor for you, if you wouldn't mind. I'd like you to stop the podcast right now and text a link to the show to a friend, a family member, or a colleague who you think would enjoy it. If you're driving, please do it when you get home. And if you're listening to this while exercising, then I can only imagine it must be a low-intensity workout, and you can afford to pause to send a text. As always, show notes for today's show can be found at theparadox.com, that's P-R-A-D-O-C-S, slash 060. But without further ado, Dr. Cloda Ryan of Care Direct Care on what the NHS is really like in the trenches. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Clota Ryan. She's a board certified family medicine physician, grew up in Ireland, which you'll find out in a hurry, graduated from Trinity College Dublin Medical School in 1999, worked in primary care in Ireland for a few years, and then moved to the western suburbs of Chicago where she had to complete a new residency, as you, most physicians who come to this country, uh, where she did family medicine again at Adventist LaGrange Memorial Hospital, spent eight years in what we could all just a traditional private insurance-based practice, and then started her own direct care uh, called CARA Direct Care, which is a direct primary care practice. She's on faculty at the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine in Downers Grove, and she lectures in precepts medical students. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm very excited to have a discussion about your experiences both on either side of the pond.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh,
0: so the first question, I guess, is what brought you from Ireland to the United States?
1: Uh, one word, love.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> that moves mountains often.
1: Absolutely. I had no intention when I graduated medical school in 1999 of ever leaving Ireland Um and um you know I had classmates who would take the USMLE board exams during med school and I thought they were totally crazy because I was like well why would I do that I'm already doing enough you know exams yeah um and then I met my husband and I had met uh, several years before that because we both play Irish traditional music so we met when we were in our early teens but there was no sparks flying at that point and um and then and after after my internship at you know, after med school is when we actually got together and he's from America. He's from Chicago. So it ended up that it, it all, all the stars aligned. And here I am. I've been here for seven, 17 years this year.
0: So you met a kid from Chicago in Ireland playing Irish music. And then he, and he dragged you back to the States.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a few extra pieces to the story, but that's about it. really, (laughs) (laughs) yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, and so I had a episode fifty-three, I talked to Dr. Philip Booth. He's uh he's a professor in economics and he discussed the National Healthcare Service. And so what I found very interesting about your story is you've obviously worked in both sides and, and there's a lot of questions from physicians and from patients and I have people ask me all the time, you know, when it comes to what uh, when it comes to the healthcare system in the United States, if you were to move to a different sort of system, what's it like in other countries? Could you adopt single payers and those sorts of questions? And it's really hard for me to answer these because, as I mentioned, to Dr. Booth, during the episode, you know, everyone sort of feels like their healthcare system is above average, right? No matter who you talk to, and to get the real a real assessment, you have to kind of meet someone when they're uh, when they are okay describing the warts, and, and you know, it's sort of like when you discuss talk about your relative, they're great, and then you talk to your other relatives about their relatives, like, yeah, this guy's a bum or whatever. But mm-hmm. you know the outsiders you never, and so to get an honest assessment of a healthcare system, it's it's oftentimes very hard. And I think even comparing metrics, it's very difficult too. So one thing we we talked about it with the NHS. So why don't you discuss the NHS and sort of how it plays in with Ireland? Because I mean, as someone I'm ignorant to the to the system in you know in Ireland and in the UK, are they similar? Are they somewhat affiliated? How does those that work?
1: So, yeah, so um, I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is technically part ah, okay. of the UK. So when I was, um, for my first 18 years, I was a patient of the NHS, and my par- my parents and my six, um, five, five of my six siblings still live there, so they are still patients there, and, you know, go through all the medical treatments there. Sure. And then when I went to medical school at 18, um, we go straight from high school and we do a six-year program, I went to Dublin, which is its own... Um, Country government, healthcare system, everything, but it's a very similar um, setup to the NHS. Um, so, so I had, and then I did a few rotations in the, you know, in the NHS hospitals during my medical school. I would go up to Belfast, et cetera, and do electives, and um, and so my my training is primarily in Ireland, which is a similar NHS to the NHS. But I had, you know, I've got personal experience in the NHS itself, and I have a lot of medical friends. Who are working in both sides of, of um, the Irish Sea in England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland and, and Ireland? So I've you know I've had some um, conversations with them, et cetera, about how it's going.
0: Sure. So you have so you have basically two national healthcare systems. One is the NHS, which is the UK system, and then you had experience with that, but also with Ireland system, which you say is fairly similar. So what is um when it comes to primary care? I've a lot of f- physicians who listen to the show. What is primary care like in Ireland, you you know, NHS and how is it different from the traditional primary care practice, which you participated in for, it sounds like eight years before you open your own practice? How are they similar and how are they uh, different?
1: So I would say that, um, when I th- well, it's so uh, but primarily they, they're called GPs first. So family medicine docs are called GPs both in Northern Ireland and in the south of Ireland, um, and so they do have the sim- similar practices. You know, they'll be in the small towns, the large cities, in clinics. They'll have nurses. They'll have you know receptionists, etc. Um, they see a a high volume of patients per day um, i would you know my when i worked as a gp in dublin i was seeing patients every 10 minutes and often double booked you know multiple times during those 10 minute visits um, they you, you there wasn't as much paperwork because we don't have to chart quite as much i mean quite as much as an understatement, probably ten percent of what you have to actually put down, you know, all the box ticking and et cetera here right. It's not as as necessary. You could write, you know, I, I used to re- see a kid with strap throat and say, you know, sore throat times one day, fever hundred point, you know, four. Um, strap positive amox times eight seventy five, whatever we were you know, it was yeah, a yeah. very, very mm-hmm. short abbreviated note. Um, I would take uh, half si- half-sized half pieces of paper and I would write, you know, three lines and those would be scanned in for each note. So it's, it's very, in that way, it's very um, efficient. Um, the uh, pay- patients in um, the NHS don't have to pay a copay to come in for a visit, but patients in Ireland do, and that's a, quite a significant copay. It's like 60 euros per visit. So that's, you know, a deterrent for sure for pe- people to come in Um but it was it's it so similarities. It's pretty hectic, just like here, mm-hmm. um, and and the same kind of stuff. Um, the differences would be, you know, the charting, no insurance. Um, but we would have, you know, we'd have a lot of paperwork on the other side. So the referrals to specialists, referrals to the ER. You had to really. I had to think very, very carefully before I sent somebody to the ER for anything because they would be waiting, you know, twelve to twenty-four hours if it wasn't something extremely urgent. So if I wasn't sure of the diagnosis, it was you know kind of a hard call to to either get them to the ER, even in with a specialist, somebody who you know you wanted to see a specialist within the week. It was a lot of work to get that person to where they needed to be. Um, and I think that still continues because I've heard that from my friends, that they have to write letters to um, the specialists or we, they, to get them in urgently. There's a lot of phone calls and a lot of faxes, and, and that's an awful lot of you know um, extra time to get people where they need to be. Um, and then, so urgently, I mean, yes, you could send patients to the emergency room or casualty, as they call it there, and they would get taken care of. Often they'd be waiting for a very long time they would be on a bed in the side of the you know the hallway. There wouldn't be a bed in the in the um, the ward or the floor. So they'd be you know piled up in the ER until they would get a bed. You'd be sharing beds you know sharing um, rooms in the hospital four or five other patients no privacy etc. Um, and there was a private wing, um, especially in the south uh, hospitals in Dublin. That would be where people with that extra. Private insurance that you can have, and I heard you talking about that with Dr. Booth, and that is definitely a thing both in um, the UK system and in Ireland, where patients get tired of the long waits, so they have that extra private insurance policy that helps them get to see the specialist more quickly or get to to get the surgery more quickly. So they, um, so they would have, you know, nicer floors for the patients with the private, the private um, insurance, Um, and so it, you know, it, it was. I mean, when I was there, and that's, we're talking, my 20-year med med school reunion was actually last week, and I didn't get to go, but (laughs) um, I can't believe it's 20 years. But um, when I was there as an intern, we were doing, you know, we as doctors, there weren't any um, uh, respiratory therapists or or phlebotomists. We did all the labs. We did all the IVs. We did all the catheters. We did all the disgusting stuff in the middle of the night. That was us. But, you know, that, I mean, that, yeah, I look back and I think, you know, that that kind of... um, that was good training, even though it was pretty, pretty horrendous. Um, It may be different now. I'm not sure. Um, I do remember when I did my internship here and, you know, I had all these extra people to help me with all that stuff at night. I was like, this is absolutely awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, You you talk to um, people who trained in medical school in the the United States in the eighties or, uh, and they were, they were the ones oftentimes doing, because the, the ancillary staff wasn't there to do all those the phlebotomy and stuff like that. And and I think part of the expectation was that that was something the medical students were expected to do. And so, yeah, that yes, people absolutely. actually wait a, a half a day or a day at the ER to get treated? Oh,
1: yeah, it depended on, you know, if it would be triaged for sure. But if you had a broken leg or a, you know, broken wrist, you're sitting there for hours. We didn't really? Bring, we, yeah hours. Now again it it probably also depends on the time of year sure, you yeah, know flu yeah, season right. and all that stuff but there were times I, you know there's just it's it was so hard to get um extra help. Like you really I mean someone in some ways that would make me a good primary doctor because I, and I and in some ways direct primary care in that way is similar because I have these patients with no insurance and I'm like, well, I don't want to send them for this procedure somewhere else. Can I get, right. or can I really, can I, t- can I, uh, try, can I try and figure out what's going on here and, you know, di- um, diagnose and treat myself. And I do a lot more, I think in the DPC world than I did in insurance based world. Uh, so in some ways it was like that, we, we, but we didn't have the time because I was seeing patients every 10 minutes and you know, there was a lot, like if you had three depression patients in a in a row, I was running an hour and a half behind. And so in that way, mm-hmm. I was similar to the insurance-based world here too. So that time factor that just, you know, n- not really having a good chance to sit down with the patient, you know, I think it's the same in both systems for sure. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, I'm enjoying DPC so much more than either because I really get to sit down, form a relationship with the patient. Right. Um, and a lot of the time there's um, there's not as much continuity over there. Like people will just see whoever's available. And so, yes, you will have a doctor that you know, but if they're not available, you will see the other doctor. So um, oftentimes I think the chronic patients, the older chronic patients will hold out for their visits with their regular doctor. But again, you know, they don't get quite as much time with them. Um, and and uh, oftentimes I think there's things that, come out in that second 30, the second 30 of the 60 minutes that we can spend with our DPC patients that really can help the patients overall, you know, going forward. So, um, so it was, um, I was there working after med school for about three and a half years. And I actually worked in a variety of different GP clinics because, um, I was playing with a band at the time. So I did a lot of locuming and I took some time off my training. So I did some training in Ireland and then I took this time to play with this band and did a lot of different clinics and got a lot of different experiences in the the GP world there. And then came here to do my, you know, my internship residency, et cetera. So, um, so it was, um, it, it was very, I mean, it was, it was, it was satisfying, but I was, you know, satisfying in a, in a way that, um, i mean i enjoyed i knew at that point i definitely loved being a gp but um the uh, access to care was so poor that it was very frustrating i spent so much time again it's kind of like fighting with insurance here we were fighting with the the government system to try and get people where they needed to be for specialist care right so you know what happens over there then is um urgent care is very good so even though i mean yes i'm saying you have to wait in the er but if you're, if you're in a traffic accident or you're in, you know, you have a heart attack or something like that, you will get in and be taken care of and, you know, ICU care and everything. It's, it's excellent. What's not good is the non-urgent care. So um, if you don't have something that is deemed urgent, they, you get, you get put on a waiting list and, and it can be weeks, months. Um, I mean, I have, I have a few stories even of my own family. My sister had, um, gallstones at 45 she's you know a few years older than that now and she had a gallbladder full of gallstones you know every time she ate abdominal pain she was put on a waiting list to get her gallbladder taken out she had to wait I think six weeks in that time she got acute gallstone pancreatitis and you know was extremely ill it was I mean because she had to wait for this gallbladder surgery my um my mom has got macular degeneration and she's been waiting over a year to see a retinal specialist. Um, my dad had to be on, uh, nine months of antibiotics because he was waiting for, uh, to see his ENT because he had like horrible sinus stuff that needed surgery and he couldn't be off the antibiotics because he was so sick. But because it wasn't urgent in the, in the NHS, um, you know, uh, what they deemed urgent, he had to, they just had to continue his antibiotics until he got the appointment. Um, And they, and it's kind of antiquated, they send in letters, and then they have to wait for an actual letter by mail, which gives you your appointment. So God forbid, you actually miss that letter, or you miss your appointment, because then you're waiting another three to six months. Um, It's, you know, so that kind of stuff. But there's, I mean, there's some really good stuff, but I think there's a lot of um, extra support around what the GP does. So um, I know they have a great, so They I don't know if you know this, but the if you have a baby in the UK, you come home within the first 24 hours unless you have, unless you have a C-section. Right. So my sister-in-law had a baby at 6 a.m. and she was home by 4 p.m. and um, But they send a midwife, every not a midwife, a lactation consultant every mm-hmm. day for a week to the home. So that's one way that, you know, they can keep the costs down. But they still provide the support to the mother, which I think that's an awesome thing to have a lactation consultant for, you know, every 24 hours for a week come and watch you nurse the baby. Um, And um, my mom is in uh, the, um, she has, um, she's got the National Institute for the Blind Status now. So she's been, they will take, you know, they'll give her like, Uh, transportation to conferences and put her up and show her how to work, you know, being, being partially blind around, you know, different kind of tools and tricks and stuff. So there's a lot of extra services that are really awesome that we don't have, but um, they're still waiting,
0: you know? It's, I mean, it's, life's about trade-offs and when it comes to these systems, it sounds like you're sort of, you give up one thing and get something else. And, and I guess, you know, to try and take everything in its whole entirety is that's the, And comparing, you know, what's better, what's inferior, it's it's maybe tricky.
1: It is very tricky. And I, yes, absolutely.
0: And so, uh, you know, I I guess, you know, my thought is you're waiting six months for, uh, to see a retinal specialist. What is your, what does your family think of this? Are they say, well, that's just the way it works. Everything else is great in the back end once you finally get treated. And so that's just the way the system works. We still love the NHS. Are they... They would are they terrified of like the U.S. system or other systems in Europe? I mean, what how do they feel about in general? Like, would they would they give it up if they could do a, something different? Yeah, that's a
1: good question, and I think that you know it's very frustrating for my mother to be slowly losing her vision without any recourse, and if she could come here and get you know, uh, care over here, she would, it's just, you know, cost prohibitive and right. lots of other issues. But, um, uh, and I mean, uh, I was very angry when my sister got sick because I thought that, you know, that was just malpractice, you know, yeah, I right, mean, it's, right. there have been a few, there, there are, I think it, it gets, um, it gets frustrating when you do get this, you know, somewhat, could be serious but not urgent concern that you know would. I mean, there are, people do not like it. They don't like having to wait. I mean, there are a lot of the time um, people have to wait like three months for physical therapy. I mean, if you're in pain, there's a lot of pain. Oh yeah. There's a lot of. I feel like there's a lot of suffering, and um, that is you know hard to watch when you know here the access could be much more quickly obtained for of course a certain you know certain section of the community Mm -hmm. that's that's another reason my DPC is great because we're kind of providing access who didn't have that access before for similar stuff you know yeah Um, and that feels very good because I feel like we're you know we're kind of we're kind of bridging those two things we're providing the access and yet keeping the cost down and giving people another option when they felt helpless and frustrated that they couldn't get those things. Um, But in, in the UK, it's, it's harder to obtain that. Um, The private insurance direction does help somewhat, but it's, you know, it's not ideal. Yeah. Um, They, you know, there, there is a certain limitation to treatments there to, you know, you can't just like, we're very blessed, I suppose, in the States to have all these, you know, superb academic institutions that have research trials and, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, while you can't always be in part of the, one of those research trials, you definitely have more options over here. I mean, I've had several um, friends bring family members over for a second opinion over here to try and figure out if there's anything else they can do for their, their cancer treatment that has, you know, stalled over in the NHS. Um, but yes, it is. It's it's an interesting concept. I th- what I what I find is that people are more accepting of their suffering. I think. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh, well, that's um, just the way and, it is. Yeah.
1: You know, and oftentimes turn to more natural remedies or discuss a lot of uh, Dr. Oz type discussions. <laughs> I've had many discussions about vitamins and supplements, and you know, the latest and greatest about you know for arthritis and many 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 times about different you know and i feel like that's more over there because those chronic arthritic conditions and back pain and everything it's just there's not there's just not as much um uh you can do for them over there um from Mm -hmm. a you know getting to the right point getting to the right person um and um so it but it's interesting i think that um overall the there are many many good things about the nhs that i you know that that are saving lives and that are you know providing access but it's not it's not great you know yeah. it's um it's very frustrating and as a doctor i think i find it very frustrating and i remember and that was really in ireland but i remember thinking after a few years working as a gp and double and i was like i love my job but i do not love the hectic pace at which i'm trying to take care of trying to you know help people and i just feel like a mill a mill of people and we don't really get into the meat of anything and um this is not fulfilling for me because i'm fighting with people i'm calling people trying to get them in you know there's just so it was just very frustrating already in my mid-20s and i and so Mm -hmm. i was excited to come over here and try a new system and in many ways like i loved residency i really enjoyed it um, insurance doesn't really hit you in residency, you know. The whole no, it doesn't. Yeah. Rigors of insurance, you know. I remember the first day I started residency, and my nurse handed me a billing sheet, and I said, "What's that?" <laughs> and I, I was like, "I have no idea." What you want? Tell me what what you want me to do. Of course, I had to pick it up pretty quickly, but it just it was, you know, it it wasn't. It did not hit me until I had private practice for sure. So, um, and it was actually, in the, in, at that time, it wasn't that bad before the EMR and the Obamacare stuff came in and you know Mm -hmm. so much extra administrative stuff happened for docs you know so it wasn't that bad that was like the mid like 2005 to 2008 is when I did my residency so um it was really later you know as you've probably you know discussed with many other doctors it kind of all went down the toilet um (laughs) and yeah it was it just you know I was like it was a very similar feeling to being in Dublin and trying to call specialists or trying to get through to somebody that would let me help me get somebody who really needed to be seen into the rheumatologist or to the endocrinologist or whatever, or get an MRI or CT. God forbid you want to get scan, imaging in, in the NHS. That's great fun. I used to go down and fight, and in my intern year, the intern would be sent down to the CT scanner to fight with the radiologist to get somebody put on the CT list for the day. Like literally you would be in the per radiologist, you know, so frustrated, so angry all the time. And you'd be sit, standing there quivering and, and, the, you know, and they'd be like denying it. And of course they had a pact, they'd one CT scanner for, you know, a, in like a, an academic hospital or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that's the same even in the, as an outpatient um, trying to get that stuff done. It, that was the, that was the um, equivalent to the insurance um, headaches we have here, um, so leaving it all behind to go to direct primary care has been—it's been pretty darn great. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah,
0: there's no question. Talking to people who have moved to the direct care, that they, I mean, the the reason you go into primary care, generally speaking, and I I talk about this about every episode, is it's the relationship you have with the patients, especially for primary care, and if you don't have a relationship, it kind of sucks a lot of the fun out of the job, right? I mean, I think getting to know the patients and getting to know them about their lives and helping them their journey, you know, whatever the health journey is. I mean, that's, yes. that's what it's all about, right? Right. Um, so I, you know, you worked in a number of clinics, so I feel like you had a pretty good feel for, that the system was pretty consistent throughout, you know, where you, what you saw when you're in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And if I feel like when you t- hear people talk about a single-payer system and they'll all say well you know the nice thing is it streamlines everything paperwork's all gone and like you said your notes are just to take care of people my suspicion however would be that the notes would actually not be that way <laughs> they would just take what a current system and you know just now they just the government would pay for everything and just expect you to maintain all those metrics and data but that being aside um, uh, if I part of me always wonders too I think people forget that how much richer the United States is even than the UK and Ireland and um, the resources are much greater here in general. And so, would there be such massive shortages? I think there. I think there would. I think there would be. There would be. Would be. But, but not probably as profound as it might be. There. It's impossible to know really unless you actually try it out. But um, when you when you came to when you started your practice here, you were you're doing eight. You did a number of years in the sort of the insurance mill, and you're running around just like you were back in back in Ireland, just in a different. A different master, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Right? What made you? What made you to switch? Or what? How did you find out about direct primary care that made you think that? Oh, that's something I want to do.
1: Um, You know, it was. um, I was lucky enough in that I was not in a hospital-owned practice. I was in a private practice with one other doc who owned the practice. So I was an employed physician, and I was part-time. I had four kids and six years. Um, mm-hmm. so I had, you know, Oof. had a, uh, it was, it was a pretty flexible position for me. Um, the, um, why did I switch? Well, I think as the EMR and the mandates with all the charting got more and more heavy, um, that was a big burden for me. I'm not i I'm not a fan. I don't think anybody's a fan of charting really, but.
0: <laughs> I, was gonna say, I haven't <laughs> met one yet. <laughs> yes,
1: but you know, it was like, they they they, might well coming from where i came from with the notes and then having to suddenly in residency write a story for every single patient i almost had a little swear word there but um they you know i was just this is ridiculous (laughs) this is really ridiculous and then it got worse and as the years went on it got worse and worse and i was like am i doing you know and so that was one part and then so keeping up with charting so i was doing a lot of that at home because i would want to spend more time with my patients of course um and then just the fighting with the insurances and stuff i would go i i it just was a it was a lot of stress and i wasn't happy with it wasn't fulfilling and i actually thought about leaving medicine you know significantly seriously at that time i was trying to figure out what i would do and i you know had to go through the layers and decide what I really what I wanted to do. And it was really, I kept coming back to the fact that when I was in the room with the patient talking to them, I you know, wasn't looking at the computer or whatever. That was what gave me joy. That was what fulfilled me. And if I left that, I would, you know, I would miss that. So I had to figure out, okay, will I stay in medicine and find something else that looks better in that? patient doctor interaction. And then I find direct primary care. And I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. I was like, why wouldn't I want 30 or 60 minutes with my patients? Um, Ironically, when I started PC practice, I never thought a a patient would want to spend 60 minutes with me. I I thought, well, they'll be out the door (laughs) in 45. I've got somewhere to go. Every time they use the 60 minutes, I can't believe it. Like very rarely somebody says, you know, doctor, I have to go. Most of the time they are just very happy to sit there and talk. And um, and they just, you know, feel better as they walk out the door. Um, so that was the part that kept me in medicine was that I, you know, I would get good feedback from my patients that it was a good listener and, you know, I was compassionate and it was helpful and whatever. Um, but I also enjoyed it. It wasn't that I, that I, they thought I was good at it. It was, I also felt felt good when I was in the room with the patient. It was the other stuff that I wanted to get rid of. So DPC, you know, it's not perfect. There's definitely work on the other side of the, the patient room door, but, um, sure. but it's, it's um, the primarily my hours are spent talking to a person who needs me to help them. And that's where I, you know, because that's, it's the majority of my time. That's why it's much more fulfilling.
0: Yeah. When you, one of the things that are always discussed when it comes to comparing the NHS or a single payer system to the US system and people say, well, you know, what'll happen is all the, all the people who are high performers, um, they're going to slow down. They won't work as hard, uh, as far as physicians, you know, they won't see as many patients they'll stop working. And you hear this when you talk about like the Canadian system, for instance, I mean, because every system is going to be different. Uh, what's What's your feel with that? And then, from a pay standpoint, you know, the other contention is: well, no one's going to want to go into medicine because it's not going to pay nearly as well as it was before, and so people are just going to quit, retire, whatever. Uh, what was your pay like back in Ireland versus the United States uh, with the traditional model? And then, I guess, you know, what's your feel on feeling about the movement to DBC for you?
1: So yeah, so as regards um, the high performers and decreasing their um, productivity. Um, I think when you're in a GP, like a government run clinic, you don't really have much choice as to your productivity. Like you have 10 minute appointments and they, they, they fill you up the way that you, you know, to, to get the patient seen. Um, the, you know, the average, I think is about, you know, 15 in the morning and then there's a few, there's a couple of house calls at lunchtime and then there's, you know, another 15 in the afternoon. Um, but, um. The, I don't know that you get much choice. You have set hours and you have, you know, set amount of time slots. I don't know if you can um, decrease or increase the minutes for those. Um, and there's so many patients that, that, that get assigned to that clinic that you have that built-in panel. You know, it's not like you're waiting for patients mm-hmm. to come. So um, as regards pay, um, I think overall the pay is probably lower than it is here, but the overall, you know, the wages, et cetera, the salaries in, in the UK and Ireland would be lower. That's what I've seen. Like, I want to say that um, a, 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 a GP, so there is a opportunity to, to take partnership and practices and have some, you know, some ownership and some income from that. And I want to say that, you know, I, some of my friends have quoted me like, you know, 120, um, British pounds per year, which is equivalent to probably 180,000 per Mm -hmm. uh, year here annually, or maybe uh, it depends on the exchange rate, of course, which is fluctuating wildly these days. (laughs) But um, you know, and then the cost of living in a lot of ways would be would there's lots of places they would be a lot less. So, um, but then you're taxed heavily too. You know the the tax is higher because you have to pay for the NHS with your <laughs> with your taxes. Like <laughs> right. the tax rate, I think in Ireland for for somebody, you know, it was like I don't know forty percent or something crazy when I was there. I mean, there they have there's heavy taxes compared to here, isn't it? In like the twenties for most, you know. I I try to the tax the whole taxation here is is so variable that I I mean it's very much more set in stone. The the categories or the the classes of taxation. Uh, both mm-hmm. in Ireland and the u k so it's easier to predict it um but you know in general that's a very good a very good salary for the average person so you know doctors are definitely paid much more highly than teachers and policemen and you know uh, um, male workers et cetera so you know that there it is a it's you can live comfortably in that for sure um so here in DPC, um, I think for me DPC, uh, it it kind of varies. I think where you are from from location to location and and how much you will make DPC wise versus your insurance based practice. Mm-hmm. But I'm expecting. I'm in, I just hit my second year anniversary on Sunday, the first of September. Congratulations. So thank you. So and I'm expecting. And I and I. I started off and I was covering my overhead from the start because I started with a hundred patients from my old practice, but then I bought my unrenovated my office in the first 10, uh, ten months in. So that was a big, you know, uh, that was a big chunk of overhead that I had to um, pay back. Yeah. So I am, you know, I'm expecting in my third year to make um, the equivalent of what I made in my insurance based practice and then probably make more after that. Um, So, you know, but that's with a lot less stress and a lot more autonomy.
0: Oh, yeah, right, right.
1: And possibly working more hours, I will admit, you know, I'm working probably extra time on days when I would have been off, but it's for me and it's my practice and it's enjoyable to put the time in. So Mm -hmm. um, there's no comparison when I, I didn't really go into medicine for money. Um, I, if, if I had, I would have become, become an orthopedic surgeon or something, but I didn't, you know, you don't go into primary care yeah. to, you definitely can make a make a decent living compared to the vast majority of, of the population in primary.
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's very comfortable. Um, but it was never about, about making the, a, you know, a big living for me. It was always about that patient, like the relationship and the talking and the, you know, the, the fulfillment Um and so you know, I'm happy with less than I made in the, my previous job because I have so much more joy joy in my job, and I want mm-hmm. I, I'll yeah. do it you know till I'm seventy. so um, so that makes a lot of difference for me.
0: yeah, well, I think there's without a doubt, I mean money matters, but you know when you look at even encouraging people to incentivizing someone a a, a job to do more or to you know to, to get be more productive. Money actually, its influence wanes pretty quickly, oh, really? and then you need something else that's going to mm-hmm. that's going to incentivize someone to to do something, and 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 that is fulfillment. That's making meaningful and rewarding. And you hear that all the time from people complain about millennials that they're you know just out for looking to for fulfillment and not actually about you know paying attention to the other things that really matter. But ultimately, that's what really what motivates someone. At to a certain point, once you have enough to get by and live and comfortably and stuff, then it's sort of yes, you know, I agree. And, then you're right. Are you just making money for vacation, or are you just, or would you rather just be more happy? You're happier at your job. Mm-hmm. That's sort of. The I
1: mean, thing. I see, I see, and I hear many of my friends' residency, and you know, and even on Facebook groups with uh, different docs that I'm on, on with you know, and they're making twice or three times this much, but they are miserable. You know, I mean there's life is too short, you know, it's, you only, you only have one life. You only get one, one childhood of your kids to enjoy. It's not, it's not worth it. Um, and so that, but that's been, you know, very liberating too. the other thing I have to say is that, you know, I think when I, I, I take med students into the office and I try to convert them to, so that they'll start a DPC practice right out of residency (laughs) every time. I'm like, even if you want to do endocrinology, you could do DPC endocrinology. Um, so, um, but you know the the overwhelming thing is the student loans, right? So yeah, um, right. and I know many very entrepreneurial and um, motivated docs who've started out of residency and paid down their student loans. Started their DPC out of residency and doing urgent care, moonlighting, whatever to keep the loan payments going. Um, but it is hard. That's that's hard. It takes a lot more, you know. Um, motivation and, and nerve, I would think. And I was very blessed because that's one thing that, um, I I mean, I grew up my a uh, very modest home, seven kids and we had, um, the government paid for our college education. And so I got my med school for free. And actually my older siblings, because there were so many of us, they had, they had a living grant as well. So a lot of their accommodation was paid for too. Uh, By the time it came to me, I was number six, that kind of had dried up. And so I had to pay for my accommodation, but still, I mean, that's, when I look at, you know, some of my friends with their mortgages of their student loan. Yeah. Right. And that, that definitely makes your decision-making. It's hard to turn down the higher earning jobs at the start when you're coming out of years and years of, you know, uh, of um, education and all the loans to pay back. So I get it, but I still try and encourage them to talk to those docs that I've met who are doing it, you know, paying their student loans down as they do their DPC Um, because the more, the more people we can get right out of residency, the better, I think, you know, Um, because, because otherwise they go into five to 10 years of, you know, a miserable job and, oftentimes you know get depressed or get
0: yeah depressed oh yeah yeah, whatever
1: yeah. you know so if we can save them early then i'm all about that so so yeah i love talking to my mad students and just kind of hammering i i mean every five minutes i'm like this is why i love dpc look we, yeah <laughs> look at this we'd never do this and you know it's it's so they get it and um i hope that they will call me when they want to start their dpc
0: yeah it's interesting all the dpc docs that i've spoken to and i've spoken to quite a few now. I, they're always the biggest advocates for it, and what I what I love about it, and I talked to other docs about this in the hospital. And just today, I had a had a long discussion with the PA during a, a back surgery or neck surgery, actually, because he was wondering, curious about DPC. Um, uh, that uh, everybody, it doesn't matter what ideological bench you are, which is what I love about it. You can be very liberal, very conservative, libertarian, whatever. You can be anything, and everybody sees the value of it. Everybody sees how it, from a personal standpoint, it's you know, more honest transaction. It's more personally fulfilling and it's sort of the way you want to practice medicine in general. And so I think it doesn't really, it's, it makes it much more durable, I think, and a a potential to really catch on. And, and I'm convinced uh, that as soon as patients really discover it, which I think they are starting to, uh, that, that the risk for going straight out of medical school into, or out of residency into a direct primary care practice will, will diminish significantly. Because because there'll be such a huge demand for these these docs, you'll be able to command, mm. you'll be able to fill up pretty quickly. I mean I, I mean that's the real problem. I think I think the supply is actually there just fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sort of have to have enough supply so that people know about it, and then they see that it works. Its model works, and then you need to have then once the demand catches up, which I think it will pretty quickly because I don't think high deductible healthcare plans are going away anytime soon, and so. All right it's going to seem affordable to people. You know, if it's if it, if they're paying nothing to get to see the doctor, then it, then it, the direct primary care model doesn't work. But right now it's so expensive.
1: Yes. And, and, you know, it, it's funny because, um, I was, I, I talked to one of my friends who works in the NHS, um, last week after our reunion, I, um, to hear how it had gone and everything. And we were talking about her job and, and she was talking about how, so they don't have a copay in the NHS. Um, and so people it's it's almost like you know you the medicaid patients can't get in to see their doctors here so they go to the er right so you see that right. all the time right yeah. well it's the same with the gp clinics i mean every you, there are people who just call for everything i mean they just they don't have that they don't really have the need but because they don't have to pay for it it's free so they there's why why would they not you know so right. so that i was we were talking i was telling her you know i was telling her about um the way it works with my practice and asking like, what if they had to pay, you know, five pounds a visit? And she said they would probably 50% of them wouldn't call. So, you know, (laughs) I mean, I think that um, it's, it it wouldn't, you know, there may be some changes there that just help decrease the utilization, the overutilization. And I find my DPC patients understand it because they're more engaged because they are paying me directly they're more engaged in their health care and they're more likely, especially the first six to 12 months of their membership. I see them quite a lot because they know they're paying for it. So they want to get all those, you know, those bits and pieces taken care of. Um, and then they're healthier for it. We do a lot of preventive care, et cetera. So, um, but they appreciate their care. Because and I tell them every time I dispense a medication or I send them for a cash pay radiology um, exam or a lab, I tell them exactly how much they're going to cost, how much it's going to cost, and that's what they're going to be charged. And they appreciate that so much too because they, you know, who who loves going into a hospital lab to get, you know, rheumatology workup done and then getting a three thousand dollar bill, you know, a month later. Um, yeah. So um, that part with the patient, because we're used to it in every other aspect of life, you know, what, oh, sure. what yeah. what's the price, <laughs> you know?
0: Right. Yeah. Plumbers who come by. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, plumbers, let's yeah. not yeah. talk about plumbers. They would make war, way more than DPC docs. <laughs>
0: I was talking about, I'm sorry. I was talking about urologists. I guess I wouldn't make myself clear there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, those kind of plumbers. Yes, definitely. <laughs>
0: uh, so one of the questions I had for Dr. Booth, and I, I'm going to guess, I know the answer to this, but, uh, and he didn't know it. Is, is there any sort of movement? Is there any interest in direct primary care in the UK? Or is it because everything's free? People are like, I'm not going to spend an extra, you know, 50 bucks a month or whatever it is to see someone else. And there's no way you'd ever get enough patient volume, even if you're the only person in London, for instance.
1: Well, I have been trying to create a movement in DPC in Portland, <laughs> Ireland, with all the conversations I have with my medical friends. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that... Um, the that free market like entrepreneurial type um, uh, head that we have here, or I think you know, there's there's just more ability to do kind of what you want here, um, especially mm-hmm. in a, in a in a such a occupation as medicine, which is very tightly controlled in Britain and Ireland, but. Um, there is, there is ability to do it. I think if it was the right, you have to find the right um, patient demographic that would be willing to pay for their healthcare. And I did hear Dr. Booth talking about the private hospitals and how people will go you know, and get their private surgeries done and that sort of thing. And I think that's probably happening more. I think in the next 10 years, you might see that people are more willing to pay because they can't access. So, um, so for, even for primary care, they might be willing to pay. Um, But I, I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure yet. Um, I think that it will be hard. It will be hard to set up a private DPC practice in the, in the UK. And then would you have access to all that extra ancillary services that the GP clinic have access to? Oh, sure. Right. laboratories. I mean, mean, if you did, then that would be great. But if you don't, then it's very, very hard. So um you'd have what to do you, find it
0: what, your, what do your friends think? When you when you describe how your practice is and you know how you spend time with the patients, do they sound like they would find this intriguing, that's something they'd want to do, or do they think you're kinda of crazy? What do, what's your impression of their impression? I'm
1: thinking probably a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, i I know that um they get frustrated. I mean, their heads are ready to explode at the end of the day. They don't get to go to the bathroom in the middle of the day. You know, they don't get to eat lunch, just like most of the insurance-based docs, you know. Um, So I think they're bemused and intrigued, but probably it seems so so far away from what they could actually achieve where they are right now that they don't, um, you know, they just kind of are interested, but not like, Oh, I'm going to go to do that. Like, I don't know if they can see it actually taking off yeah. where they are. I know that they feel very overwhelmed. Um, most of the time, which is how I felt 20 years ago when I was doing, you know, my GP experience in Dublin. So, um, it's just, there's just too many, it's just like a, you know, too many people in one day. You can't give them enough attention.
0: Do you know if they have the same problems with burnout and suicide that we do in this country?
1: Absolutely. There's so much, um, so many people, in fact, there's so many people leaving England and Ireland to go to, um, I believe New Zealand is the latest place. It was Australia for a long time and Canada, but a lot of ducks uh-huh. are leaving. They just keep leaving because there's just not enough support and, um, you know, too many extra demands put on them. So absolutely, it's the same way for sure. Um, And I know they're, they're having a real, if you see that, if you look up, you know, NHS and, or even Irish, the Irish healthcare system, it's just, you know, leaking doctors. They're just like, bleeding doctors is the word I was looking for. Um, They just don't stay. They, they, they train them and they pay for their, their education and then they don't treat them well. um, And many of them leave. So um, uh, many of my med schools um, uh, graduating class are in different countries for sure.
0: Yeah, well, so, it's interesting that, that you had so many taking the USMLE. I mean, that alone is I. I'm shocked that people would sort of have the forethought to yeah, take Yeah, me too. I, at school. that time, I
1: was too, <laughs> Eric. Um, I thought they were crazy. So, um, yeah. There's there are um, there's many med- there's several of the, us over here, and then there's there's a couple of um, there's several in Australia, and New Zealand for sure, and there are a few in the UK as well as Ireland. So, um, it is interesting where everybody ended up.
0: But is that why there's such a shortage of of, of getting like is it is the uh, is it a facility problem like getting your surgery or is it the fact that there's not enough general surgeons what's, what's I would the say there's there's a, there's a
1: combination of the, that and then there's not enough money to pay for the surgery so they only have a limited amount
0: per, oh.
1: per I would think that it's a it's a budget issue too um for the NHS itself for sure um so they probably only have a limited amount of um slots per month or whatever
0: yeah. Yeah, it is it is interesting to think that you'd have essentially central planners deciding what how much should be spent on any sort of treatment modality and not, not based on, you know, actual yes. people who need to use whatever it is. I know.
1: Well, and I, it's intru- I I am very, you know, intrigued with the healthcare politics here, you know, having come from and worked in the different systems and then, you know, seeing Medicare for all being the possible future and i mean how are we going to do that if we have extremely high prices for everything like that how are you going to how are you going to because the nhs that's one thing like the prescriptions are no more than five pounds per per bottle of you know meds they don't pay very much for the prescriptions and they don't pay they don't pay anything for their their radiology and their surgery so how are we going to bring those costs down in order to have a medicare for all I mean, how is yeah. that even going to happen with two, with so many people, so many players in the in the cost fixing?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that that's one of the many problems with it, right? I mean, that's why you hit such wildly um, differences in cost estimates for how many trillions of dollars extra would be, because can you negotiate down drug prices? And then if you do that, are you going to basically squash any innovation that's going to occur? Because most of the innovation in pharmaceuticals and a lot of devices and everything... Occurs in the United States now it may be tested in Europe and used there first, but oftentimes it's because it's the yes, I agree with money that. comes from here, right? Um, I
1: mean, well, absolutely. I, it, squashing the innovation would be a big fear for sure, um, because you know there's there's so many good things that have come out of those billions of oh, yes, dollars sure. that pharmaceutical companies do make off of uh, all of us. So
0: yeah, but you know um, it's it's hard because you look at all the lives that are saved sometimes yes. by. And and delaying the introduction of a you know whatever maybe an antihypertensive or something for a year, you may think well that's no big deal because you know this is the pharmaceutical companies can make their billions in the back end. But maybe there are you know ten thousand people that die prematurely because they weren't able to get have access to that or uh, you know mm-hmm. chemotherapy absolutely agent. absolutely. And so you're killing yeah. people by I mean you're not just like not provide you're not just you, the the other end is you're actually you're truly killing people by not by not allowing these products to come to market. So. I mean,
1: yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because I do know, I mean, I have a patient and a family member who have both had um, years added to their lives with um, a chemotherapy um, oral drug that was take put on the market just around the time they both needed it. And they are both living very fulfilling lives uh, that they should have been, you know, they probably would have, have been gone at this point. And that's really... Um that that was very powerful for me to, to watch that happen. And those are very it's in a very expensive drug. So of course they have insurance, so the insurance picks up, you know, yeah. whatever. Right. But that that particular um case, you know, really um brought home to me how lucky we are to have access to these um uh, medications that can save lives. But then we have the people who have zero insurance here who aren't going to the doctor and then they you know, they're They've got, um, you know, a lot of preventative prevention um, diseases that can could have been taken care of had we got them access to preventative care earlier.
0: Yeah. I mean, but, was, but
1: that's where DPC comes in. Right. So.
0: Well, I think, you know, that's that's a piece of the puzzle, I suppose. Well, it's been a great conversation. I Thank you so much for um, spending time. Our time is done. But where can people find more about you if they're in Western Western Western, in, well, in Western, uh, suburbs. Western suburbs,
1: yeah. <laughs> in so Chicago. my practice is called Cara Direct Care. That's C-A-R-A. That's the Irish word for friend. Um, yeah. uh, direct care. And um, it's in LaGrange, Illinois, which is just west of Chicago. Um, and the website is caradirectcare.com. I'm on Facebook, Cara Direct Care, Twitter, Cara Direct Care, Instagram, all those fun stuff. Um, and feel free to shoot me a message or send me an email through the website. I'd be delighted to talk to anybody who wants to, wants to hear about DPC or, or, um, you know, learn about DPC or, you know, um, come shadow me. I've, I've had many docs come by the office too, and just kind of, um, learn thinking about, you know, making the transition. So I'm always happy to help.
0: Do you also on totally unrelated, but do you have, uh, any websites or anything like your music or do you, are you not in an active band right now?
1: Um, I'm not in an active band right now, but we do play a lot with our kids are learning. So we play a lot with the music school. So um, probably on the Facebook page, you know, if you friend me on my the per- personal Clod Ryan that's attached to the Facebook page, there's some videos on there. Um, we had a couple of, we had a fundraiser a couple of months and I played at. So we're hoping as the DPC grows and is, you know, settling down that we will get to play more, which is actually happening already. So the goal is to, is to play more and, you know, uh, perform more so that's kind of cool
0: well thanks so much so if you're irish and in chicago we'll make sure you look up a of ryan thank you so much
1: thanks eric take care thanks for listening to the paradox if you like what the doc is doing please subscribe and leave a review on itunes or stitcher and share the show with your friends Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.
0: it's hard to find someone who can sort of straddle both of those. In fact, I think probably you rarely can. Uh, someone who uh, knows a policy yeah. and, and then can also say, well, well, this is what it's like in the trenches, you know, in the weeds. And so most right, of my conversations right. are actually with people in the trenches. And so it's, it's very unusual that I have someone who is at a high level. I just have to be a conference with Dr. Booth. And so I'm like, well, this is an opportunity uh, to, for one thing, get someone without a Midwest accent uh, on the show, yeah. which is kind of nice. And <laughs> And, and you know in the United States. Someone with that, that accent, you automatically sound more authoritative, whether you know what you're talking about or not. So it's always.
1: Oh, I know, and indeed, uh, absolutely. He's got a very he's got a very posh British accent yes. for sure.
0: He definitely sounds like a professor.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm not so much. I've I've got the Irish brogue as they call it, but that that goes down well here too, for sure.
0: Oh yeah, it works. Uh, and it's yours is not actually that thick. So you mu- you've obviously been in the states for quite a while at this point, and, yes. and lost it I suppose, um, unless you go home.
1: Uh, and yes, it gets very thick. In fact, um, I have one of the perks of my practice is it has attracted the self-employed Irish people in Chicago. So I have, <laughs> I literally have 20% of my practices from Ireland. So my accent has got much thicker in the last two years. It was, it's absolutely, I never <laughs> thought of it. I never even anticipated it, but they came.